case file number 3.5. Rosenberg and Gildenstern are dead. Part 2. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So I feel like in these these two-parters or three-parters, we need to have like Dragon Ball Z intros. This is like, oh, the last time on, you know, the Rosenberg trial. Well, I think we're in season three of, of the 12 packs as we were as as we usually release them, or at least it's being recorded. <laughs> Maybe we'll work something like that out for season four, but we've got a lot of multi-partners recorded that we'd have to go back and do a ton of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In this episode, it's just the Rosenbergs just screaming for 30 minutes, and then the episode ends. Maybe the Halloween episode. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as we last left off in the other episode, um, we finished up with uh, David giving his testimony about the Rosenbergs. Obviously, if you're listening to part two without listening to part one, uh, you should probably listen to part one. So the, the Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel, they had gotten Ethel's brother, David, who worked at Los Alamos to forward them secrets on the atomic bomb research going on there. And eventually arrests began snowballing as more and more people in that conspiracy were uncovered and arrested. So today's episode, we're going to start off with the testimony of Harry Gold, um, one of the people that was implicated in all of this. And then we'll go on to um, a few other testimonies and then propaganda behind uh, trying to get the Rosenbergs acquitted of all this stuff. And then eventually what befell them. And a cool little like extra thing that I found uh, in the LA Times. Excellent. Harry Gold's testimony, during it, he said that he had engaged in Soviet espionage from 1935 up to the time of his arrest in May of 1950, and that from 1944 to 46, uh, he had a superior that was a Russian, and he knew him as just John. Uh, later, he identified a picture of an Anatoly A. Yakovlev, a former Soviet vice consul in New York City, as the John character. Mm -hmm. In June of 1944, Gold had an espionage meeting with Dr. Klaus Fuchs in Woodside, Queens, New York. And as a result of this meeting, Gold wrote a report and turned it over to Yakovlev about a week or so later, um, when he told Yakovlev that his next meeting with Fuchs would result in him obtaining information relating to the application of nuclear fission to production of a military weapon. So the goods, as we say. <laughs> yeah, the goods. He had the goods. Yeah, you know, I mean, I know that we we talked a little bit, and we're, we're, there's some ambiguity as to how much it helped. But if it was the key to making that work, it was probably the most transformational piece of intelligence in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the nuclear chemist, like further down in my notes, um, actually testifies that a lot of the stuff like would lead any expert to know exactly what was going on. Mm -hmm. In the latter part of 1944, uh, Gold met uh, Dr. Klaus again in the vicinity of Borough Hall in Brooklyn and received a package, which he turned over to Yakulev. The next meeting between uh, folks and Gold 
was in July in the vicinity of 9th Street and Central Park West. About a week or two later, uh, Gold gave Yakolev a report that he had written concerning the conversation and told him that folks had given him further information concerning the work of a joint U.S. and British project to produce an atom bomb. After this meeting, Gold had regular meetings with his handler, who instructed Gold how to continue um, in his contact with the doctor. Gold stated that he was to obtain information from a number of American espionage sources and give it to his handler. And he pointed out he organized these meetings uh, with these sources by using recognition uh, signals, such as an object or a piece of paper and a code phrase in the form of a greeting, always using a pseudonym, kind of like the um, episode one where we're talking about the jello box and using the torn off the top. Yeah, well, the jello box is really slick. The code phrase thing, you see that in, I believe, just about every Bond movie. There's a uh, yeah a, a call and response that way. Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, he also stated that his sources lived in cities other than Philly, uh, which was Gold's home, and that he paid money to these sources, which he received from Yakolev. Mm-hmm. Early in January of 1945, Gold met folks in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and received packages of papers, uh, which he later turned over. He told Yakovlev uh, that folks had mentioned that a lens was being worked on in connection with the atom bomb. So I know you, you've done like more research into this stuff. I did like a little quick search. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a reference to the explosive lens. Yeah, that's what I would have assumed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a highly uh, specialized shape charge, several uh, explosive charges arranged and formed with the intent to control the shape of the detonation wave while uh, passing through them. Yeah. What you're basically doing with any atomic bomb is smashing two barely subcritical masses together very, very fast and having them go super critical all at once. The difficulty about an atomic bomb is A, the material, and I think we talked about this in the last episode, mm-hmm, yeah. and B, making sure that you can consistently keep it at the barely subcritical level. Right. Yeah. And there's the the simplest type, and I, again, from last episode, atomic bomb, the gun, what they call the gun type, uh, is basically having one subcritical mass at the end and an explosive behind the other one slamming it together. But mm-hmm. that's not an efficient thing. The an implosion bomb, which is what Fat Man was. So I think Little Boy was the was the gun type, and I think Fat Man was an implosion type. Is much more efficient. It was. He was also a uh, boss in Metal Gear Solid too. <laughs> Fair enough. Was, was Fat Man? I, yeah. You know that might not be a coincidence. They might have named one after the. Action. No, no, it, it was it was directly related. Yeah, he was directly named after it. Um, he actually wore a um a bomb disposal outfit. So the the next meeting between uh, Goldman and Klaus was set to be in Santa Fe on the first Saturday of June 1945. In February of 45, Gold met up with Yakolev on 23rd Street between 9th and 10th Ave in New York City. And at this meeting, uh, Yakolev indicated the Russians had an interest in the plans mentioned by folks. So on the last Saturday of May 1945, uh, Gold met up with his handler again inside a restaurant on 3rd Ave in New York to discuss the meeting in Santa Fe. During this meeting, Gold was instructed to take on additional meeting at Albuquerque, which he protested. However, Yakolev said it was vital, pointing out that a woman was supposed to go, but was unable to make that trip. And if you remember from episode one, I talked about um, there was supposed to be a woman that was going to meet David's wife in a theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then that didn't actually pan out. So also keep in, keep in mind Gold protesting this because this does come into play uh, later on. The FBI kind of makes some notes as to how all this unraveled. And mm-hmm. part of that is because Gold took on this extra gig. 
do we ever get any story on why the meetup with the woman never happened? Was it? No, it was not listed in the FBI report, and I couldn't find like much reference to her. I don't even know if like her name ever came to light yeah. as to who she was supposed to be. Yeah, I assume that it was a, a Russian agent that turned out to be unreliable, either unreliable or unavailable. And it's just kind of interesting. I would have, you know, the question comes up as to yeah. why, because it sounds like they tried to use her twice. Yeah, and it, it could be that it was just, you know, they realized she was under surveillance mm-hmm. and yeah. just like kind of canceled it completely. That would be otherwise unavailable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So David uh, was given an onion skin paper on which was typed the name Green Glass, an address on High Street, Albuquerque, and a recognition signal, which was for him to say, I'm from Julius. I was looking up onion skin paper because I've never actually heard that. From all I can tell, it's just it's basically just tracing paper. Mm-hmm. And it was used at, uh, on typewriters at one point. It's just kind of a thin paper. Yeah. I don't know if writing this stuff on onion paper made it easier to dispose of that's what i think i know that they used easier to dispose of paper for for messages like that and and i would think that onion skin is the semi-translucent almost tissue paper like slightly more substantial than tissue paper that yeah that i've run into in the past but you know i can't even remember where yeah yeah you can buy it on amazon right now oh fair enough yeah so if you ever want to start uh, your own conspiracy oh i was just thinking if i could get the onion paper and some green pepper paper i could have the really thin uh, stuff to go on top of my cheesesteaks. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you gotta have the cheese was No, no. To make it make it an official. Proby. Proby. Oh, uh, no. These, these <laughs> are arguments that are allowed within the orthodoxy of cheesesteaks. <laughs> Putting lettuce, tomato, and mayonnaise on a cheesesteak is not. I hold this, fight me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's sacrilege. Yeah. So... Yekulev also gave Gold a piece of cardboard um, from said Jello package that we talked about. Gold was then given $500 in an envelope to turn over to the green glasses and instructed to follow an indirect route to Santa Fe and Albuquerque to minimize any attempts at surveillance. So he arrived in Santa Fe on Saturday, June 2nd, 1945, and he met Dr. Klaus, who gave him a package of papers. He then left Santa Fe in the afternoon, boarded a bus to Albuquerque, and arrived down there in the evening. Uh, he got to the Green Glass address, but found that both David and his wife were not home. So he just stayed overnight at a rooming house. The next day, he went to the address and met with David. I know in episode one, we talked about this meeting as well. He exchanged the recognition signal and piece of cardboard, and uh, David verified him. David was not actually aware of this visit that was supposed to happen. Um, oh. So, you know, he told Gold that it was going to take him, you know, quite a, quite a few hours to compile the material. Yeah, and like no one, no one had keyed him on this. <laughs> That's... <laughs> not 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 good well i guess also we're, we're talking in in a wired telephone world especially clandestine communications aren't necessarily reliable and it's a world where like you tried to catch somebody at home <laughs> you might come by their house like that's yeah. the time we're talking about maybe this is a little bit more common not as weird as it sounds to our ears right now yeah 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 true so he compiled all that information um, and also he told Gold about the possible recruits at Los Alamos, but Gold cut him short, basically telling David uh, it was way too hazardous and that David should be circumspect uh, in his behavior. Mm-hmm. So Gold left and returned later in the afternoon to collect the envelope with uh, all the information David had compiled on the bomb. He gave David the five hundred dollars uh, for this in return, and he then met Gold, um, or he then told Gold, sorry, he was most likely to be laid off, and gave him Julius's phone number in New York in the event that Gold would need to reach him again. 
Gold returned to New York City on June 5th on 245. Uh, while he was en route back to uh, New York on train, he examined the material David had given him and put that all in a manila envelope. Uh, he also took the information that folks had given him and put it in a different envelope, uh, both of these passing them off to Yeklov when he met up with him somewhere in the Metropolitan, on Metropolitan Ave in Brooklyn. So he got the stuff from Klaus Fuchs, the the, the um, theoretical physicist, and Gold got the stuff from, uh, got the information from um, from Abel. And so all the information that came from, that came from Los Alamos together and, and was passing it to the KGB handler. Yep, and just two different manila envelopes. Right. Yep. Okay. Making sure I had track of all the moving parts. Yeah, yeah. So roughly two weeks went by before uh, Gold and Yekulov met again on Main Street in Flushing, New York. Mm-hmm. Gold was told that the information he had given was sent immediately to the Soviets and that it was reported as extremely excellent and valuable. During this meeting, Gold related the details of his conversation with uh, folks and Greenglass, saying that folks reported tremendous progress and a detonation scheduled for July 1945 to Gold. Mm-hmm. So in early uh, July 1945, Gold met his handler again in the seafood restaurant. Uh, this time, Yakulov told him that it was necessary to make arrangements for another Soviet agent to get in touch with Gold. Um, per instructions, Gold took a sheet of paper from his pocket, which had the heading of a company in Philly. He tore off the top portion containing the name, and on the reverse side of the sheet, wrote in diagonal fashion, directions to Paul Street. Uh, Yakulov then tore the paper in an irregular fashion. He kept one portion, and Gold kept the other. Uh, Gold was told that... He- he would probably receive two tickets in the mail without a letter. Um, if he did, that would mean that on a definite number of days after the date on the ticket, Gold was to go to a roadway stop on the Astoria line for a meeting which would take place at a restaurant bar. Uh, Gold's Soviet contact would be standing at the bar and approach Gold, asking for directions to Paul Street. Uh, they would then match up the papers and you know, the contact would be complete. I just checked and the Trinity test of the Manhattan Project was on July 16th. 1945. So that lines up to, to the first major atomic test. Oh, really? oh that's, yeah. yeah, that's cool. So August 1945, Gold uh, again met Yakolev in Brooklyn, and he was told to take a trip to Santa Fe to see folks. Uh, Gold suggested to Yakolev that since he was going to see the doctor again, he might as well go to Albuquerque and see David. However, this was deemed inadvisable as it might endanger gold to have further contact with green class. Mm. So I think at this time, Yakulov kind of realized that he made a mistake <laughs> introducing the two of them. Yeah. So gold met with uh, Klaus and on his return to New York, he went to a prearranged meeting place to see Yakulov who failed to appear. After 10 days, Yakulov met with him on main street in Flushings. I uh, turned over a package from folks and reported that there was no longer free and open cooperation between the British and American Americans and many of the departments had been closed to uh, folks. Oh, wow. Yeah. So folks also stated that he would have to return to England and that he was very worried about this because the British had gotten to Kiel, Germany, ahead of the Russians and might discover a Gestapo dossier there on folks, which would reveal his strong communist ties and background. Folks in gold also discussed the details of the plan whereby folks would be contacted in England. So there is evidence that that Klaus Fuchs was a, was a communist, but the Gestapo had it mm-hmm. and the Americans didn't. Yep. Well, and we know how this story turns out in a little bit is that right after the war, Reinhard Galen was a German, I forget if he was SS or SD, but uh, he was basically recruited by the CIA to run operations against communism, against Soviet Russia 
right after the war. Mm. This is one of those Operation Paperclip type things where we made use of real Nazis that should have been like real war criminals. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of like right after the war is very kind of gray and muddy and how we treated you know it's actually really surprising to me how much how little we knew about operation paperclip yeah until pretty recently i've only had only found a very few number of books about it we always knew it happened because one of the most important people to come out of that was uh Werner von braun mm-hmm. and without that we may very well not have made it to the moon mm-hmm. yep. um not just may not have made it then but well we probably would have made it by now if we had still wanted to do it as hard as much as we wanted to do it then. But if we hadn't had the step forward that he gave us, we might not have done it before we didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot to that. Frankly, we got past what he, the things that, that he taught us in like the sixties and seventies easily, but he, he represented a very important set of leaps forward um, in rocketry. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I'm, I know that's totally not our topic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a crazy time like in our history, right? And and not to give too much credit to to Werner von Braun, there's been a real attempt to whitewash him. But like Pinamundo, which is where they made the V two rockets, was one of the most horrible places for Jewish slave labor in the entire Reich. So not to soft yeah. sell, like. You got to recognize everything that happened, not just the bad and not just the good. Yeah. And I mean, not to like fully tangent here, but we had a lot of like Nazi sympathizers in America before we entered the war. Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of what the Nazis did and how they rounded up people was based on how we rounded up Native Americans and the Japanese and a lot of the stuff we did. In our country. Yeah. So, yeah. Our hands are nowhere near as dirty, but they are far from clean. Yeah. But anyways, back to um, the story. So, (laughs) (laughs) so in uh, January, 1946, uh, Gold met again with his handler and uh, he was told about a man, uh, Yakulov was tried to contact, who was under uh, continuous surveillance. Yakulov used the story to kind of illustrate to him that it was better to give up contact than endanger their work. Mm -hmm. And early in December, Gold then received two tickets to a boxing match in New York uh, through the mail. However, the tickets were addressed to his home incorrectly, so they arrived too late for Gold to actually keep the appointment. Mm. At 5 p.m. on December 26th, uh, Gold received a telephone call at his work. Uh, the voice basically just said, this is John, and then arranged a meeting with an unidentified man in a certain movie theater at night. I don't know if I'm doing the spy game i'm worried that that i'm not going to live through that meeting and and under that kind of arrangement yeah 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 so the the man uh at the theater identified himself with the torn piece of paper and asked gold to then proceed to 42nd street and third ave uh to meet yakulov when he met with him um he asked gold if he had anything further about folks and apologized because he had a 10-month absence in which they hadn't contacted each other, basically explaining he had to lay low at this point. Mm. Told Gold he was glad um, that Gold was working in New York and told him uh, he should begin to plan a mission to Paris, France in March 1947, where Gold would meet a physicist. He gave Gold another onion skin paper, uh, setting forth information on the proposed meeting. During the conversation, Gold mentioned the name of the employer, and upon hearing it, Yakulov became very excited. Um, he told Gold, and not, not in the good way of being excited. He told Gold that uh, he basically almost ruined 11 years of work 
by working for the individual he was employed with because the individual had been investigated in 1945. Uh, Yakulov dashed away stating gold would never see him again in the United States. That was enough to burn him right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The FBI report on this uh, basically states uh, that an interesting note is that the Soviet intelligence services in utilizing gold to contact Greenglass had made a mistake in security that would lead to the uncovering of the Rosenberg spy ring, which was independent of the one gold was involved in. So from FBI knowledge of Soviet intelligence activities, it's known that the Soviets with a stress on security will not usually allow a member of one network to know of another network's existence so that if one fails, you know, the other one can't. Yeah. Standard isolated cell structure. In fact, one of the best uh, explanations of that I've ever had was in the uh, beginning of the Robert Heinlein book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I don't think I ever read that. It's one of my all-time favorite uh, um, of that era of science fiction. Okay. I mean, even if you don't like a lot of other cookie-cutter Heinlein stuff, it's a really, I think it's a really good book. I'll have to check it out. The the other point is, um, like I was mentioning earlier, so a nuclear chemist testified from 1944 to 47. He was associated with the project at Los Alamos. He stated his own work was related to implosion research and classified as secret at the time. He went on to state that he would go to the machine shop there at Los Alamos and furnish sketches to the supervisor of the shop to determine what was needed. He recalled seeing David Greenglass there um, a few times in the shop and identified sketches prepared by David during David's own testimony as reasonably accurate replicas of the uh, sketches the chemist had made. Mm-hmm. Uh, these specimens uh, could have been of value to a foreign power, according to the chemists, and would absolutely reveal to any expert what was going on at Los Alamos and its relation to the atom bomb. Wow. So even if the Russian scientists, as uh, I think that you mentioned in the last episode, thought that they that they already had that information it would have been enough to put them on the right track even if they had yeah 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 exactly it wasn't like just useless information right so one of the other testimonies was uh a litcher mm-hmm. and during his testimony he stated getting a call from julius rosenberg who identified himself as a former co- uh, college classmate of his and wanted to visit him during this visit he told litcher of the soviets being denied war information that he and the others were helping uh them out with getting to them and he asked if he wanted to assist in on this a very like just balls to the wall approach of like yeah we're helping we're helping the soviets you want you want it well i mean one of the lessons that i think we've learned in the modern era as well as from a lot of the fairly in the last decade or so releases of of, um, cia operations is that boldness is caught a lot less often than you might hope (laughs) yeah i think i think we see that a lot just kind of in modern like just politics too it's like the people that will just like you know no holds barred just say something and you're like wait like anyone anyone like bueller bueller (laughs) what are you gonna do yeah and people are just like oh we we can't do anything it's like but he he just admitted right he 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 just he just gave you what i thought should be the case like he said he said it out loud on tape yeah, he said the, he said the quiet part out loud, <laughs> like, like on tape on national TV. Yeah, isn't that an admission of really? And then wrote it and like published it. <laughs> and you're like, and got it, got the chance to take it back. Yeah, and double down. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's just like, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy at times. Yeah. where you're like, come on, but yeah. Anyway, but the fact is that sometimes you get unlucky, but in a lot of cases, I don't think that people are. are are punished for that boldness often enough, quickly enough to change their behavior. Yeah, that's it. It's like if they get punished, it's so long. Yeah. 
past that point that yeah well, i mean people even forget what happened well that's how the feedback loop by which we learn um mm-hmm. part of the reason why we as humans behaviorally have problems of like taking more and more risks which is you know actually an important part of this story of gold doing more and more instead of keeping himself constrained to what he could get away with yeah that's the same thing until you're caught you don't know if you're pushing the envelope too far yeah yeah exactly and i mean that's also like yeah like you said that that's what kind of makes us human yeah because a, a lot of success stories too are based on just like you know they didn't try once and succeeded they failed hundreds of times and yeah just kept you know doing it because they were bold yes so during his testimony as well uh Letcher basically said he had took taken a, a week-long vacation with uh, morton sobel and his future wife and during this he had mentioned rosenberg's visit to sobel and that he had talked about Sobel by name, which Sobel was very upset by. <laughs> I imagine, <laughs> you know, good good reason. <laughs> just like, oh yeah, he just offhandedly mentioned you're part of this conspiracy. Like, what's up with that? The testimony also stated that in September 1945, Julius had told Letcher that despite the war being over, the Soviets were still in need of information. When Letcher visited Sobel in 1946, they talked about Sobel's work at the electric company in Schenectady, which. Can't remember if I mentioned that in episode one or not, but I'm, I'm assuming that's either General Electric or whatever was there before General Electric. There wasn't anything before General Electric because General Electric was Edison's company. That, okay, yeah, I, I didn't know if they'd taken over the plant, but yeah, that wouldn't yeah. make sense. So, so yeah, the G there, there were two at that point: Westinghouse and 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 uh, General Electric. So, yeah, and it's still there. One other testimony was by Elizabeth Bentley. She was a confessed former communist, and she testified that she had been a member of the Harlem section of the Communist Party from 1935 to 38. In 1938, she had met a man by the name of Jacob Golos, who was in the communist underground and passing information onto the Soviets. Uh, eventually, he died, and after his death, Bentley began to collect the information from communists employed by the U.S. government and pass it through the communist superiors to Moscow. In the summer of 1945, she reported to the FBI all of her activities. Uh, the report didn't say like that she got caught and kind of like confessed. I think she just went to them. Okay. Uh, they they asked her, you know, will you continue basically doing what you're doing though, like under our guidance? And she was like, yeah, sure. And so she did that until the spring of 1947. She stated that during association with uh, Golas, uh, she had became aware of Julius and witnessed Julius conferring with Golas on uh, at least one occasion. However, she was uh, unable to make a positive ID on Julius. So this was noted and uh, a lot of her testimony just was kind of defunct at that point Mm -hmm. because she couldn't really prove that, you know, it was Julius. Mm -hmm. So after all of this, uh, the Rosenbergs testified and denied all allegations against them. Shocking. The FBI article doesn't really go into like their testimony and everything that went on there. But on March 28th of 1951, the counsel for each side summed up their respective case to the jury. And on March 29th, the jury rendered a verdict of guilty against the three defendants, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and Morton Sobel. Mm-hmm. And on April 5th, 1951, the following sentences were imposed. Uh, Julius Rosenberg was sentenced to death. Ethel Rosenberg was sentenced to death. And Morton Sobel was sentenced to prison for 30 years. Wow. But not, none of them elocuted or or testified uh to what they did at all no they just denied all allegations so the court procedure um had extraordinary propaganda drive to save the rosenbergs 
the communist frenzied efforts to rescue the Rosenbergs um, from what they termed as legal murder was uh, deferred for more than a year after the arrest and for more than four months after the guilty verdict in, in a uh, trial described as a monstrous frame up and travesty of justice. At first, this trial, though, was like completely unnoticed by the Communist Party press mm-hmm. until after the verdict was given. And even after the verdict was given, um, the Daily Worker had a brief article on like page nine about it. And that was it. Huh. Well, I guess that there wasn't a significant coordination between the American Communist Party and the KGB. I, I know that there was some funding that was supposed to go that way, but I'm not sure if it started that way or not. Yeah, it might not have. In April, though, all that changed. A headline article in the Daily Worker read, uh, Rosenberg sentenced to death made scapegoats for the Korean War. And it was noted you know, there that they were sympathetic parents of two small children and condemned uh, the severity of the sentence, but not actually the verdict. Mm-hmm. Like in, in no way did they like basically say they're not guilty. It was just, you know, yeah. you're sentencing the death over this. Like, what gives? Yeah. Well, and again, we talked a little bit about this on the first one. There is a difference between an American who believes in communism and a Soviet sympathizer, even in that era. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And by midsummer 1951, the propaganda campaign was in full swing. In the winter of 90, uh, 1951, a continuous round the clock picket line was maintained by Rosenberg sympathizers at the White House. Uh, this was called off after 500 hours, uh, basically when it was evidence evident that President Truman was not going to rule on a petition for clemency prior to his retirement. Mm-hmm. In 1953, the lawyers of the Rosenbergs and Sobel were making their final legal moves. Uh, thousands of pickets formed around the White House. Uh, during this time, an official count by the D.C. Metro Police put it around 6,800 people were involved. Okay. A decent number. Yeah, especially before the internet. Yeah, yeah, before the internet. And can organize like a ton of people, yeah. The Supreme Court recessed during the summer, but one court justice actually announced that he had granted a stay of execution in order uh, that new points of law brought before him by defense attorneys could be heard by the lower courts. Uh, upon news of this, more picketing was taken up around the White House and continued um, up until the execution of the Rosenbergs, which was announced at approximately 8.45 on June 19, 1953. Um, this case was used by the Communist Party as propaganda against the U.S. There was tons of like picketing and riots all over the place. Um, in Paris, like one person was actually shot during some riots and really? uh, like, wow. a few other people were injured. Yeah. Like standard riot looting stuff or like actual confrontation related to the to the protest did you say i think i think it was just standard riot looting stuff like things things, things getting, getting out of hand, hand or something yeah. like that yeah so the big question is you know in all of this were the rosenbergs actually framed mm. because you know yeah one of the things that i remember hearing was that um gold was actually the master behind mind behind it and, and turned them into uh like not that they weren't involved but to but basically put them at the center of it in order to get clemency for himself yeah from the way you you described it i that doesn't sound like like that makes any sense so i don't know i i'll just i'll make a point that a lot of the information i gathered for these two uh episodes are based off the fbi report which obviously is going to sway in the favor of we were right all along we're the fbi they were guilty as all hell so like there's that point i haven't read like a lot of files on this that were locked away by the fbi have come to light mm-hmm. in the past like 10 20 years so there's a lot more information on that out there that i haven't gotten to 
However, I did find, like I mentioned earlier, an article by Alan Dershowitz in the LA Times, um, July 19th, 1995. So take it with a grain of salt, <laughs> Alan Dershowitz makes a lot of contrary arguments, some of which are not supported by fact as the uh, vehemence of his, uh, of, his, of his rhetoric. Yeah. So in, in this article, he refused to the executions as a series of blemish on the FBI and Justice Department and the judiciary. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, just because Julius was guilty of spying on the, uh, spying for the Soviets doesn't mean he was not also framed. And it also doesn't mean that his wife wasn't framed either. And in that, um, he says, it's likely that Julius both was guilty and also framed by false evidence. And his wife was only marginally involved. Uh, even in the FBI report, obviously, like that I've been pulling information from, there's not much talk about Ethel mm -hmm. other than like, OK, she might have typed up a few things and she knew what her husband was doing. And like supported him but like she was not meeting with agents you know doing any drop-offs like you know doing anything really right. well uh, that her husband was so to corroborate that i'm just doing a little bit of searching myself mm -hmm. there was uh something called the verona project in the 90s again i'm doing a little bit of quick searching myself but this is not stuff i just have off the yeah. top of my head um but uh they were taking they were taking captured communications that was encrypted and working on decrypting them because cryptography has a shelf life mm -hmm. you go too long and the power to decrypt it becomes available and they were able to decrypt some of that stuff that implicated julius and david and uh and ruth greenglass but uh ethel didn't have a code name in the in the in the communications mm -hmm. so that would suggest that while they had code names for everybody else they didn't have for her which means that she would have been much less involved yeah it wasn't a direct source yeah. And so Dershowitz in this article writes that he received uh, confirmation from one of the Rosenberg prosecutors several years before uh, this article was written in uh, 1995. And shortly before said prosecutor died, this person in question uh, was the name Roy Cohn. And he told Dershowitz uh, that he was going to recount a story that would like absolutely shock him, according to what Dershowitz wrote. He told him that the FBI knew for certain that Julius was guilty because they had access to secret intercepts of the Soviet intelligence message mm -hmm. messages. Mm -hmm. Um, but the prosecutors couldn't use this as evidence because if they did, the FBI would basically divulge they were listening to the Soviets. <laughs> yeah. So and the, the code had been broken. So without this evidence, the prosecution really had a, a crazy weak case. Various witnesses had given conflicting and changing accounts of everything that was going on, um, especially as to whether Ethel had typed up notes given to her by Julius or mm -hmm. um, by her brother. There was a lot of back and forth. And basically, like you could just throw out a lot of this testimony. According to Dershowitz, Cohn smiled at him at this point in the story and told him that since the FBI knew Julius was guilty um, and that he would get away with it if they just played by the rules, the FBI, uh, quote unquote, enhanced evidence and got witnesses to improve their stories and worked hand in hand with the judge during all of this. Honestly, don't put it past 50s America. Yep. This is J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. So Exactly. Cohn said that the judge... Um, Irvin Kaufman was basically in on everything. He knew about the secret intercepts and that they couldn't use them. Cohn said how the prosecutors would have secret phone conversations with Kaufman at prearranged times, especially about whether Ethel should be sentenced to death. So they were just talking to the judge during this entire thing and like the prosecution. And the, the case against Ethel was very weak, uh, both factually and legally. The secret intercepts clearly contradict the government's assertion that she was the leader of the two. Mm -hmm. uh, the only evidence that she even typed up that note, the notes came from her brother, who initially mentioned noting her type, her role as a typist. 
so it was just kind of offhanded thing he mentioned and they were like well clearly she was like you know in on this entire thing because she typed up some notes even just before the execution the fbi she still wasn't sure about her degree of guilt beyond just knowing um what was going on with her husband yeah and the fbi relied on psychological evaluation of the defendants by morris ernst a lawyer who said that he had been working with the Rosenbergs, but sending his findings to J. Edgar Hoover secretly. And I don't know if that's corroborated, maybe in the FBI files. We still don't, ha- I don't think we have revealed everything from the J. Edgar Hoover's gray files at this point. Mm-hmm. Honestly, this is, I think we talked about it a little bit in, in some of the previous things, uh, and actually in the crypto one that the episode that you did. After hearing about stuff like this, it's, easier to see why people believe conspiracy theories yeah 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 there was some crazy stuff going on yeah so when, when dershowitz asked cone how he felt about all this cone replied that he felt great about it all uh he felt they had all done the right thing and since they had been in fact guilty they might have gone away with it if they just hadn't like forged some of this evidence mm-hmm. or quote-unquote enhanced it and uh gotten like witness testimony in line and all this other stuff and all, all of what Cohn told Dershowitz um, has obviously been corroborated and uh, disclosed intelligence intercepts and FBI files that have been made public. Mm-hmm. And Dershowitz finishes the article by stating, uh, this all shows a shocking story of corruption in the highest places um, and that there, these recent disclosures uh, should not end the debate of the Rosenbergs, but instead shift the focus of the questionable behavior of the FBI and Judge Kaufman at the time. I, I kind of I, I have to agree with that. Like, yeah, it's I mean, it's collusion. I don't know. I'm, I have to look at the formal definition of corruption because my definition of corruption is somebody paying somebody off. This is mm-hmm. misuse. This is absolutely misuse of power. And we wouldn't want it yeah. to be used. Like the reason why we care about it being used in every case is that we this is the road to the fascism, totalitarianism that we see in other places. I mean, heck. We, we know that some of the most successful dictators got there by utilizing the legal power that they had to criminalize their, their rivals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Using similar techniques. So, yeah, it's very important that we don't have these issues. But like, it's harder, it's harder for me to de- completely demonize the things that happened before I was alive. It's already read history to me. Mm. And frankly, history is replete with things not being done to the letter of the law. We aspire to it and it should be the place that we get to as a society, yeah. but we have to forgive ourselves some occasions where it happens. We just, we need to make the system better. And I'm not sure that the system is that maybe we, we give ourselves too much of a pass on that. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm not as confident as I'd like to be. No, I, I don't, I don't think it's any better really. And I also, I feel like it's good to look back on all this stuff mm-hmm. and be like, well, okay, clearly what they did was wrong. Yeah. And be like, okay, well, are the people in question, are they still like in jail? Like we should definitely free them because, you know, <laughs> this was a horrible like injustice done against them. And we should learn from that history and kind of like seek to improve stuff. But I mean, going back to what I said earlier in this in this podcast, this was maybe the most significant piece of intelligence set of intelligence in the 20th century. Like it does have to be measured against that to some degree. Yeah. That's the atomic bomb. That's the cold war. That's, you know, $12 trillion of us spending. That's 
lots of people that have died of radiation poisoning during various mishaps and tests. Mm. That's the whole low-grade fear, both here and in the Soviet Union and with the NATO allies and the Warsaw Pact allies for 50 or so years. It's hard because like, obviously, like the Soviets are going to say, we didn't need it. We didn't need that. We were going to get it anyways. Yeah. And the Americans are obviously going to say the only way they got it was because of this. And there's no way they could have like learned this on their own. And at this point, we'll never know for sure. Yeah, exactly. And even even at that time, there'd be really no way to prove one or the other. Yeah. The only people that would know are not around to tell Mm -hmm. the story. And the thing is, I, I think what you're alluding to is that no single person has that answer. You'd have to like compare the notes between a bunch of different folks, the folks in the Manhattan Project and the folks in the Soviet side and figure out what who knew what when mm-hmm, yeah. to even get a clue into it. Because after the fact, again, we're all human. One effect that we see in, in psychology is it's very easy for you to attribute an idea that you got from somewhere else that you can't attribute to yourself. Mm-hmm. Those Soviet scientists may very well have gotten there on their own but if they saw that information they would not they wouldn't be able to to compartmentalize and you couldn't necessarily rely on their ability to say what what led them down to the right path yeah yeah exactly like even if like they weren't directly like hey soviet scientists check out this drawing if they had led the like other higher-ups had seen the drawings it just kind of led the scientists Yeah. yeah along the path yeah you know, they were corralled into a certain direction. And yeah, they might've gone there. To that point, it could have just been that the higher ups saw that that was the direction the Americans were going as well mm. and continue to provide funding and stuff um, that they had greater confidence yeah. that it was proceeding at pace and resources went into that project. Even if the Soviet scientists were on the right track, given the vicissitudes of the uh, Soviet system, Resources may not have continued to flow to them, at least not at the same rate, if there wasn't confidence at the upper levels, at like the Politburo level, that they were on the right track and they were going to succeed and in the relatively near future. We don't know any of this. We, I'm just putting out a scenario. Yeah, exactly. You can't just nail it down because, yeah, like it's going to be subjective. And then even if you have like letters from like ex-Soviet scientists who were like, oh, actually, like yeah, we, we did use all this and like if you don't believe the Soviet propaganda. It's like, well, are they even telling the truth or like, are they writing that in a way to like gain clout in some other fashion? Uh, So I I figure we'll finish up on this. I'm going to make a significant counterpoint to what you were saying about, you know, they knew that they were guilty and they railroaded them through. Mm -hmm. Well, we have the uh, house of un-American activities committee. We blacklisted, a large number of people who were American communists that had no link to any kind of Soviet sympathies. And it was using the same dynamics. We know that they're guilty and we ruin those people's lives, even without fully judicial um, proceedings. It was just collusion of people that blacklisted people. I just, I, I recall some of this because I saw the Ryan, the, the Brian Cranston movie uh, Trumbo. Uh, where Trumbo was a, was a uh, writer who wrote Ben-Hur and several other extremely uh, like criterion collection level movies. And he was on the blacklist. Okay. Um, this is, it's, it's a really good movie. If you, it, uh, Brian Cranston, the whole, the, that whole movie did it, did a good job of putting something like that together. Cause I didn't, 
I'll admit that I, even at the beginning of that movie, I didn't know where that it was really going to go to like the whole, the Hollywood blacklist right. and everything. But maybe that was just because I was naive and didn't know who, who we were talking about. I just saw Brian Cranston and, and I was like, eh, I'll see what he's got. <laughs> I do like Brian Cranston. But yeah, 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 that's a good point. Like a lot of times we've ruined people's lives with that weird speculation. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.